I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. Randy! Randy! Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. There are cynics who say that a party platform is something that no one bothers to read and it doesn't very often amount to much. Whether it is different this time than it has ever been before, I believe the Republican Party has a platform that is a banner of bold, unmistakable colors with no pale pastel shades. A while back along the campaign trail, I was doing a question and answer session when a little girl, couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, stood up, asked a question I'd heard before, but coming from her, it threw me. She said, why do you want to be president? I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. March 30th, 1981. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West? We welcome change and openness. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February 6, 1911 to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 
1989. The Life of Ronald Reagan, coming soon on 10 American Presidents. I'm Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast, and I approve this message. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is 51.46 degrees north and 0.14 degrees west, which puts me in Clapham, which is in London. And with me, I have my Mundi, my very own Claire Asprey. Where are you today, Claire? I'm also in Clapham. <gasps> Clapham, Bedfordshire, as ever. Even if we're in the same Clapham, we couldn't actually go visit each other, could we? Well, that's for sure. No, we would not be allowed to visit each other's homes. Any excuse not to invite me around for a cup of tea, eh? <laughs> You're very rarely even in the same continent, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. That is true. That is true, to be fair. Uh, Map Corner is the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place. Now, this month we answer listener calls because, quite frankly, um, I didn't quite get it together enough in time to string together a show about maps and quizzes. So at the last minute, I says, Claire, let's just answer listener calls, but let's delve deep into them. Now, uh, before we get on with, with the whole body of the show, I beg, I implore you to go on to Apple iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice and write us a review. Now, Claire, the next bit's in red. OK, so we have calls on this show from Kevin in Washington State and Richard from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Now, please... Don't forget to call in. You can do that by going on to mapcorner.space. It's an unusual URL. It's one of these newfangled ones. It's mapcorner.space and hitting the speak pipe tab button thing, which is over there on the right. And uh, giving us, and then you can give us your map-related trivia, your questions, or your geographic observations. So it's mapcorner.space. We need you to be a vital part of the show. Uh, today, uh, our interview is with me speaking to Ordnance Survey product manager Paul McGonigal about Ordnance Survey. Here is my chat with Paul. I'm speaking to Paul McGonigal, who's a product manager of Ordnance Survey. Now, um, Ordnance Survey, if you're British and if you're a mapaholic and if you listen to this podcast, uh, you probably are. Um, holds a high place in British culture. It's the uh, it's the high priestess of mapping, that organisation. Uh, but Paul, for people who aren't British and don't know of Ordnance Survey, what exactly is it? Uh, so Ordnance Survey is the National Mapping Agency of Great Britain. Uh, we've been mapping Great Britain now for over 225 years. 
and uh, we do we do many things with uh, geospatial data uh, around around the company. Uh, but the bit that I'm involved with is focusing on uh, leisure mapping for getting outside in the British outdoors. One of the things which kind of prompted our podcast initially was a conversation between Claire and I, which was in a world of Google Maps, where actually is the beloved paper map? Let's start right there in with the meat of of the topic. You guys are known for your paper maps. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're going to tell me you have many other products apart from that. But let's just deal with the whole paper map thing. Who's buying paper maps? Why would anybody buy a paper map? Paper maps are wonderful. Are we talking about a bygone age in a world of Google Maps and that lovely blue icon that moves as you do? I don't think we're talking about a bygone age at all. I, I think what we're possibly talking about is is different use cases. And mm-hmm. uh, I think there's, there's room for both in modern society. Uh, Google Maps are obviously developing all the time and adding new features. But I, I think typically uh, Google Maps are for urban space and people may use those for a commute or to get from one place to another. And in, in some contexts, it gives them everything they need. But traditionally, Auden Survey, we map rural space. Uh, so and in doing so, we are well, we have a responsibility to show the British countryside in detail. And that's it's, that's a detail that Google Maps doesn't really offer. Our leisure maps need detail in order to present an enjoyable, safe outdoor experience to um, our customers. And our most popular mapping is the 25K Explorer mapping. And that shows footpaths, buildings, details that you don't get from Google Maps. So that is that the reason why you're so beloved of ramblers, people that like to get out in the countryside and, and get their boots muddy? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, the, the, the product I've just described is for is for use on the ground. It, it gives mm-hmm. you context so you know what's around you. Um, it also helps you learn about the landscape and it presents uh, rural space in such detail that uh, an inexperienced walker could come up to a, a fork in the in the path or a building and then they could understand which side of the building they need to go around to continue on the right track. And, and how exactly are you guys uh, collating uh, your mapping data now? It's not all triangulation like it was back in, in the olden days, in the end of the uh, 18th century, is it? Is this all kind of satellite imagery of which you are then translating into paper maps? Tell us about your process. So it's not something I'm, I'm directly involved in, um, but we do have an uh, aeroplane that flies over, capturing capturing data, and mm-hmm. we have... Uh, Changes that come into various teams, uh, updating people about um, what's happening, what's happening on the ground. So that might be changes to uh, rights of way, might be changes to access land, or it might be updates to things like tourist features. So uh, quite often it might be a pub that's closing, it might be a new museum that's opening up, and all that data kind of funnels in through to our um, our cartography team here, and then all the updates are collated onto a system. And from that, we can look at uh, what kind of outstanding relevant change there is to be added to our paper maps. Um, in addition to this, we've got other parts of Ordnance Survey who have different requirements. So data may be coming in for um, important sites such as hospitals, schools, uh, things that are sort of more, more connected to infrastructure, really, and possibly less uh, of less use to the, the kind of average uh, leisure map user. Um, but yeah, really, our cartography team is working hard to meet 
all these user requirements for the different needs. So whereas I'm concerned about uh, leisure map users and what they need to navigate successfully and safely and have, a, have an enjoyable experience, there'll be people in this building uh, who have um, who are more concerned with are we showing the latest urban development in our, in our cities, for example, and then using that information effectively. And do you bring out uh, a new map every year? Um, we, we have a, a revision program that, yeah, we do have new, new editions every year. That basically keeps on rolling. So there are always new editions going into retail space. The last major rebrand uh, we did was before my time. So um, I've been here for about two and a half years now. And 2015-2016, uh, there was a full rebrand of the Ordnance Survey Leisure Maps, so the Explorer and Land Ranger series. And at that point, there were new editions of all of them. Uh, new front covers, new photos, uh, updates where possible. And at that point as well, um, an addition was made to the product in that um, you also got a smart map download of that area. So <laughs> effectively a digital tile of that area that you can view on your uh, on your mobile or your laptop. So that, that was probably where the kind of paper digital link first came in. Um, since then, uh, we do have new additions on a rolling basis. Generally, these are driven by... Um, for so for our Explorer series, major changes to uh, rights of way and access land, and for our Land Ranger series, it's more driven by a change to the road network, for example, a, a new ring road or bypass. You know, you had me worried for a second there, Paul, when you said that uh, there was a major rebrand, because I know uh, us, us mapaholics, us cartophiles, we don't like people to fiddle with the shade of blue used for motorways and uh, but really what you're talking about is the kind of the packaging kind of around it it's, it's the kind of the, the cover of the map because you know don't don't be changing colors of the, <laughs> of, the of the icons or anything like that you'll have riots on your hands all, all those ramblers will be well upset with you surely uh yeah it was, it was changing changing the covers uh, a lot of it was brand stuff so logo mm-hmm. positioning but also also that opportunity for that paper digital tie and the link to our digital product os maps so that was important, but um, no uh, major change to the specification of the product at that point. So, so we didn't we didn't turn the roads a different colour. We didn't change symbols uh, for the twenty first century or anything like that. Um, I think I've come to realise that there's there's a bit of a responsibility that comes with looking after these products. There are quite a few uh, people out there who rightly hold Ordnance Survey maps in, in high regard or quite close to their heart, um, maybe grew up with them, maybe used them on a DV scheme at some point. Mm. I think fondly about uh, times that they've had using them and, and also maybe a little bit protective. So it is a, it is a consideration um, for us, really. Um, so, it, so it comes up every now and again. Perhaps our, our maps are a little bit fluttered to some people or they're a bit overwhelming to, to new users. And, you know, we do look, we do consider possibly changing the specification to uh, maybe make it a little bit more accessible to new users. But at the same time, we have to realise that we've got uh, an established user base, we're familiar with the format, familiar with the specification, and we have to be, we have to be very careful to make changes that are only that, that are going to be beneficial for the majority. Absolutely, 
guys are a custodians of a, of a national jewel. All right. So you guys are utterly preeminent in what you do. Uh, you are as British as, as what? Crumbs. Uh, well, what's a metaphor I could use? As, as, as British as the, our German Greek royal family. Um, you've been around uh, for longer than them anyway. It's the end of the 18th century. Uh, looking, are there similar kind of mapping organisations in incomparable kind of countries so is there an american system is there a, a french and, and, and a german one um what are the international kind of uh, com- competitors completely the wrong word the international other agencies who do similar work and 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 if and if so in what ways do they deviate from what os does so that's a very good question um i i think yeah competitors possibly isn't isn't the right word um given that our, our main ledger maps, our, our land ranger and explorer maps, don't necessarily have a direct physical competitor. There are, you know, there are there are there are people who uh, do use ordnance survey data to create other products. Mm-hmm. And overseas, I'm um, thinking back to my time uh, when I used to I used to work for Wardstone, the bookseller, and we used to stock quite a lot of foreign maps in our in our travel sections. And IDN in France were were generally one of the more popular ones um i think we we obviously have our, our kind of very clear scale clear specification and understanding of user requirements here i've never actually compared them to uh user requirements overseas um but that might be something we will look at in the future and, and how does someone become a product manager of os now t- tell us about your your career path. Uh, so my career path, I actually came from uh, book selling. So I, I worked, worked for Wardstones, who uh, Britain's one of well probably Britain's only last major specific national book retailer. Um, no disrespect to all the good independents and so on out there. Um, and uh, I sold ordnance survey maps in the shop, and then I took up a head office position where I bought Ordnance Survey maps and then distributed them appropriately around the country to Waterstone shops so people could buy them. So as a national travel buyer, I'd meet with publishers and look at how to range books appropriately and maps as well. And uh, I uh, struck up a relationship with the Ordnance Survey sales team at that point. And I, I thought it was time for a change, really. And so I didn't have formal product manager experience. I had... Uh, retail buying and ranging experience and the, the sort of market analysis that comes with it. Um, I've had to learn quite a lot of the product, what well, the typical product management experience on the job and Ordnance Server being very kind to me in, in letting me do that. Uh, and so now I think I have a much better idea after a couple of years of what it takes to, well, maintain uh, a series, but also bring new product to market. Just before we go on to those new products, Paul, did you feel that you're walking into a hallowed institution when you walked in on, on that first day? I'm, I'm presuming there are old, uh, crusty retainers that have been around since the 1850s. <laughs> you know, it's, it's still there, you know, old gentlemen in top hats and whatever, sh- shuffling maps and, and whatever. But please tell me that's exactly what it was like on your first day. Not quite. I think I think possibly I'm a few years too late for that, but it, you probably wouldn't be far wrong if we went back a decade. Uh, so Ordnance Survey headquarters isn't where it, it isn't now where it's always been. It's it's um 
I, I think the, the building's been here for 10 to 15 years. Before that, uh, the uh, head, head office was further down the road, a little bit, a little bit closer to Southampton city centre. And apparently yeah. that, was the, that was the big sprawling building with, with loads of dusty corridors and people hiding in rooms for, for decades. Uh, this, this is a bit more open plan, uh, a bit more kind of collaborative, people meeting in, in sort of shared spaces to discuss projects. Uh, uh, I guess one of the downsides is that we no longer have uh, as detailed a map library as we used to. So apparently we used to have a very detailed uh, set of uh, old maps going back quite a long way. And I think what happened when we moved, uh, quite a lot of that went to the National Library of Scotland. So they um, got that collection and they've also worked to digitise some of those maps in. So I guess I'd, I'd, I'd love it if that was here. It would, would be uh, useful for reference, helpful for other projects, but uh, sadly we don't have that anymore. You know what, Paul? I, I'm all for progress, but there's an old dusty old codger with an, a long Victorian <laughs> beard sat in a corner. I regret progress in, in that regard. You're a product manager. What other products do you have other than the old trusty uh, map which you've you kind of told us about and you said it has this great digital download but tell us about the other things that you're managing at the moment sir okay yeah so i'd like to i'd like to pick out uh, two things please uh, uh one being um our first attempt at an urban map so we we've, we mentioned that our maps traditionally cover rural space and we recognise that our 25k maps aren't the optimum product for walking through cities and learning about them. But we also recognise there are there are active people out there who don't find our traditional product portfolio useful for their requirements. And some of these people will be using Google Maps, as you, as you mentioned before. Uh, so we, we're just going through a proof of concept process at the moment uh, to produce a couple of urban maps. And we hope this will become a series in future. Uh, so Walk London being the first one and Walk Edinburgh uh, being the second one. Um, and this is an idea that's actually come from one of our field sales team who spotted a gap in the market and has now come to work in our team to bring this through to production. It uses open data, so it doesn't use the typical 25K data. It's a concertina-style map with 11 panels, and on one side you'll have green spaces, so city parks, and on the other side, we have what's often called blue space, so a walk along the riverside. So in the London example, you get you get uh, Richmond Park, uh, Kensington Gardens and Hyde Park, and Greenwich Park on one side. And on the other, you get a walk uh, down the Thames Path uh, from Richmond uh, in the west to Greenwich in the east. And the idea is that you can follow an authored route, and along the way, you can learn a little bit about the, the capital's history, architecture, culture, and also it highlights uh, accessible routes as well, because that's that's something where admittedly we struggle a little bit with our standard series mapping. It's quite hard to depict uh, accessible routes in the countryside and to, and to make sure that, you know, we're showing a style or a gateway. It's quite difficult because that has to be a, a sort of maintained point of interest set, which we don't always have access to that data. And although we're trying to get better access to that data, uh, urban space is probably an easier place to test this because generally urban space is better maintained and signposted and, and those kind of general accessibility considerations are, are, are more clearly taken into account. Uh, so we're currently finishing off an Edinburgh map and mm -hmm. 
we just now need to do a bit more user testing and identify if this is going to be more popular with locals or tourists. So, so when we came up with the idea, the feeling was that it would be more popular with locals. So it would be for areas with large population, possibly tourists uh, as a secondary concern. But as we've kind of tested the London map, we feel that maybe tourists might be the primary market. So we, we'll have to wait and see. You are a government agency, but you are moving into a realm which I'm presuming that uh, there's going to be l- local commercial um, Edinburgh walking guides or uh, London guides. Um, is that uh, is that the case? And and if so, and um, what is the consideration around that? Uh, sorry, what do you mean in terms of in terms of there being other products out there that already do that or? Yeah, because I get that at its heart that what you do, fundamentally, there are going to be commercial competitors uh, with your basic standard product, which is to map the, the English countryside. And you said, and actually you do that in, in, a, in a level of detail that Google Maps or whether it is any other paper map uh, doesn't do. But specifically what you're talking about there seems to me like potentially what you're doing is encroaching on the territory of, let's say, a a local commercial uh, map guide hybrid who is, you know, the great thing, 10 great things to do in Edinburgh, which is specifically for the tourist market. And you can imagine going into a tourist shop in Portobello in in Edinburgh or in Covent Garden in London and seeing seeing those things. Um, so it's so that is very much going away from your core remit mm. and, and is a commercial product. In a way, I imagine you to be almost like the BBC or the BBC of mapping, you know, are there ITV, are there Sky TV products out there that potentially you're, you're going up against, I suppose, is really what I'm saying in a very crude way? Um, yeah, so, so I guess we will be going up against products, but we, we probably won't be going up against a product exactly like this. So mm-hmm. I guess there are, there are a couple of areas. Um, there are partners of Ordnance Survey who license Ordnance Survey data and are able to create their own mapping products from it. So a good example of that would be AA, who, who take our uh, mapping. Um, a to Z as well, although I think they've now recently been bought by uh, HarperCollins. And they they create uh, products, so street atlases in some cases, uh, road atlases uh, for, for planning journeys, but also sometimes uh, adventure atlases that look at national park areas, which is a little bit more traditionally our space. So there, are, so there are partners using Ordnance Survey data kind of coming into our space. But then also, um, I think it depends city to city. If we're looking at an urban uh, product, uh, somewhere like London, loads of, loads of walking guides out there, loads of maps already out there from a variety of publishers. So from the industry leaders like Lonely Planet, Dorling Kindersley, uh, down to some quite small ones that, that probably we don't know that much about and don't register that many sales in the in the consumer market. What what we've got here is a, is a slightly different proposition, both in terms of format, but in terms of in terms of having an authored route going all the way through it. Um, there will definitely be overlap with other competitive products, but we think this one stands slightly separate from everything else. Obviously, uh, 
it's a very new uh, venture for us, so the the sales are really yet to come in. So we'll, we'll have to see. But we've we've had no we've had no complaints that we're uh, stepping on anybody's toes. Put it that way. Um, and generally, we would hear about it if somebody wasn't happy. Okay. Um, I, I appreciate that um, I'm talking to you at the end of a British workday. So um, it's probably uh, appropriate for me to talk about the future of mapping so we can generally start to wind this down. I'm presuming, as I said, in a way, uh, this is uh, the, the most crucial interview we've done on Map Corner because, as I said, uh, we started off, uh, before we even did the first podcast, really talking about the future of paper maps mm-hmm. and Claire and I uh, adore paper maps having your route plotted out for you by google maps or by a sat nav doesn't have the same joy so to my head technology is going to make uh paper maps moot sometime soon i'm presuming you're going to tell me otherwise what is the future of the good old fashioned fold out paper map well, i have to tell you otherwise um okay. I, can, I can think i can think of um an example that that might help prolong the, the lifespan of the of the paper map, and, uh, and that's our that's our custom made service, which we've uh, which we've been redeveloping over the last year. So so we have six hundred and seven paper maps in the Explorer and Land Ranger series, but sometimes they're not uh, quite enough for what it, for well they don't meet the user requirements. For example, maybe a destination that somebody somebody's visiting is on the edge of two sheets. They don't want to buy two sheets. Um, you can buy a custom-made map, so that will be site-centered uh, on any location in Great Britain at um, uh, 25 or 50k, uh, excluding the Isle of Man at 25k. But we might be able to work on that one day. So you can you can buy a folded or flat custom-made map, site-centered on any location, um, and we're looking to maybe develop that further in future. So. A smaller format version of that, uh, one with an integral cover so that you don't necessarily need to have an additional cover. But also, I think you mentioned routes earlier. Um, there's, there's, there's the potential in future to be able to produce these with uh, recommended routes on from OS Maps, our award-winning digital application. And that's something that I'll be looking at over the course of the next year. Um, in order to In order to survive, I think, Paper maps will need to attract younger users, and in some cases, paper maps will need to attract less confident users who may be looking for something that can act as a as a stepping stone to our full uh, our existing portfolio, or maybe they just want something to give them confidence to take their family or go out for a walk on a weekend. So, um, I think where I'd like to get to is is custom made maps of different sizes with different levels of personalization. So you might be able to import a route onto that map uh, to help you go for a walk. You might want to import a route onto that map to celebrate something that you've done. I don't know, a a marathon, for example, or to celebrate somebody's favorite dog walking, dog walks in the area. Um, You may possibly be able to buy these in retail space rather than just through an online, uh, an online portal. Um, but increasingly, personalization seems to be uh, a requirement of the British public, and it's increasingly seen as something 
that helps uh, a product stand out from the others. So I would say possibly an element of that and then also an element of, of education. So, so continuing to educate the next generation. We know how our maps are used by the Duke of Edinburgh. They take our active encapsulated maps. They take groups of kids out, educate them, um, continually having them used by walking groups and then passed on to the next generation. Um, I suppose there's also there's also that that element that we've had with with vinyl recently. I suppose that kind of that kind of vinyl revolution, that need to have something physical, that need to maybe have something that you can hold and flick through rather than look at on the screen. Maybe that's a, a bit uh, stupidly romantic of me to to make that point at the end, but I think it's an important one as well. The way it was put to me some months ago is uh, somebody said um, whenever they go abroad and they go traveling they always come back with a paper map and for the most part they admitted that they hadn't even opened the thing but they said it's a souvenir it's a memoir to say that I did go to Rome I did go Mm -hmm. to Tunisia I did go to to wherever and um, and I thought that's just a a very beautiful and kind of an an apt way of still having at least uh, one ceremonial use for the paper map but you told us that it's still a living and breathing thing and so so that's a great thing paul uh, very last question mm-hmm. be careful how you answer this what's your favorite podcast i'll be absolutely honest with you i've been listening to audio books i don't really listen to podcasts i listen to novels when i'm when i'm traveling in the car to and from work so um i don't really have many podcasts that i could refer to that's the honest uh, answer do you, do you ask uh, everybody that I always have loved my favourite maps have always been the A to Z maps, closely followed by Bartholomew's. I can't believe you didn't just <laughs> lie through your teeth and say, of course, Map Corner. <laughs> Paul McGonagall. I, I can't lie. <laughs> Paul McGonagall, product manager for Ordnance Survey. Thank you for coming on to Map Corner and telling us that there is life in paper maps yet. Thank you. Utterly lovely bloke he was, Claire, and properly all mapped up. He knows his schnizzle. Um, I think we've, we kind of, we talked about this before, but you kind of grew up, or did you grow up on Ordnance Survey maps? Um, I do like an Ordnance Survey map. I've never been like a, in a big sort of rambling sort of family. Um, members of my family have been out kind of that, that doing that kind of thing. My dad was a big fan of like walking the Ridge Way and the Pennine Way and things like that. So it was more his kind of thing. Mm. Um, and he's got, uh, for, for his birthday later in life, uh, my stepmom bought him like a full set of um, uh, those, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name. That's the guy who does the Lake District maps and all sort of hand-drawn. Um, we'll have to do a session. We'll have to do a, 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 a show about that at some point because that's a whole world in itself. Mm. Um but I do, I do like an ordnance survey map. But I think I, I've got some sympathy with. Um, I think Bill Bryson does a thing in um, the uh, the the original book he wrote about the UK, where he sort of says, in theory, they're so detailed you can work out exactly where you are. But because mm. they're so rich, you could look at it and think, convince yourself you're anywhere on it. Um, <laughs> and um, you've got to be really quite smart to know exactly where you are because everywhere you look there's a hillock and a church and a stream and a mm. whatever it is um, so yeah I'm, I'm kind of in the Bill Bryson category of reading the uh, the Ordnance Survey maps but they are things of beauty 
Um, and there's something really special about the UK, I think, in terms of our map history. And as you said, it's so quintessentially British, but it's also a certain section of British society which is completely and utterly embrace ordnance survey and it is ramblers it's people who have rediscovered no not rediscovered is the wrong word who take ownership of the countryside and that isn't a, an, an actual ownership but it's an emotional attachment isn't it that people that go out to ramble and to walk and that is as vital as as having your your walking boots you know, your ordinance survey map. It's literally a, a badge of, of pride that, of course, you have your ordinance survey map. But there are utterly things things of beauty. Uh, so it was great to speak to Paul. And we are going to have a Zoom chat, uh, good listener, of which all the details will be on our Facebook group. So if you don't follow us on Facebook, go on to Facebook and follow us there uh, because... Um, Ordnance Survey have actually given us some codes so you can get free maps. So Paul has kindly donated five free codes and we'll give those out during our Zoom chat. So if you would like to see, I'm going to say Claire and I in the flesh, we won't exactly be in the flesh, but we'll be on uh, a facsimile of of us will be on your computer screen. And if you'd like to join in with 30, 40 other map corner uh, aficionados. Um, join our Facebook group and in the next few days or so we'll put out the details of our Zoom chat and you will have the opportunity to get yourself an ordnance survey map. Now it's time for the audio postcard. This is me in Las Vegas. What is a city? It's a place where a large amount of people congregate to live and to work, but also to play. And each city has its own unique selling point. I'm in a city whose unique selling point is play. It's been called Sin City. It's the entertainment capital, or at least one of the entertainment capitals of the United States. I'm in Las Vegas. And cities that are wholly built around play aren't places that I readily like. It's a weird place. The strip is gaudy, it's brash. It doesn't feel organic and that's the thing about the center of Las Vegas. It doesn't feel like it has organically come together over a period of time. It feels like it's been designed by a 12 year old or at least a 12 year old has gone to the city planning council and said, wouldn't it be awesome if we put some neon signs here? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had an overly large building here? Wouldn't it be awesome if, if, if? The size of the hotel casinos are something to behold here. And big for me doesn't necessarily mean bad, but I think it means bad in terms of a visual experience when you get to Las Vegas. It occurred to me whilst traveling from the airport into Caesar's Palace that this is a city that is not designed to be walked around. Even the strip, which is the beating heart. So this is a very weird place where most cities you get a sense of place or just a sense of geography by being outside. It's incredibly vital that you have that, but not here. This is all about these 
self-contained vertical towns within the city which are the casinos you can do everything in them you don't just gamble of course they're hotel casinos so you have beds but they have numerous restaurants they have clubs they have clothes shops you don't need to be outside to experience las vegas how many times can you say that about any other city in the world you don't need to be outside on its streets on its pavements on its sidewalks to fully experience that place if dodgy carpet perma smiles and slot machines are your thing you'll not find a better place to visit than las vegas hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Sign up with code program for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Mm. 
didn't like Vegas much. I think I made that pretty clear in my audio postcard. It's not a place that appeals to me, if I'm honest. It's a bit like Dubai, where it's all kind of like ephemeral and not real. Well, you know what? There's a really neat link between our feelings about Dubai and Vegas and with one of our calls later, which is Kevin from Washington. And... I would say, though, I think, I think I'm, a, I'm, I'm con- conscious enough. There's a certain level of snobbery, and it's not conscious snobbery, but about towns and cities. And and what we want, what I want anyway, is an authentic experience. And authentic means this place is rooted in some level of history and has organically become what it is as opposed to someone's planned it in the last 20, 30 years and they've just built it in a hurry. And Las Vegas, okay, is older than 20 and 30 years, but it's all around one industry and that industry doesn't care about being outside. You know, so to truly take in Las Vegas, you've got to be indoors, which is, I would say, very uncity-like. And and then with Dubai, I've never been. But have you been to Dubai? No, I was offered it as a stopover on the way back from Australia last year. And I was like, no, thank you. We went to Singapore instead. Mm. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves here. Well, no, let's get ahead of ourselves. Here is Kevin. He's from somewhere and he's going to uh, opine about towns. Hello, Map Corner. This is Kevin. I'm calling in from a surprisingly rainy Phoenix, Arizona I've been catching up on Map Corner recently, and a question came to my mind. Um, what are medium-sized cities medium-sized cities like in Europe? Um, at least in my experience, these cities of roughly 40,000 to, let's say, 100,000 people contain a, an abnormally large amount of history and culture. Um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about suburbs, like cities that exist almost solely because they're close to another city, but independently existing uh, small-ish places. Uh, I'm biased. I'm from Bellingham, Washington, which is about halfway between Seattle, Washington, and Vancouver, British Columbia. And it's got its own history. It's you know not very big, only about 80,000 people, but it's just super charming and has a lot of its own history, uh, independent of Seattle and Vancouver, which I really appreciate. Um, And there's some other places um, in the world that are like this, like, for example, Squamish, British Columbia, which is uh, somehow it's at sea level, but it's only an hour away from Whistler, which is where a lot of Olympic events were held. Awesome little city, apparently the best place for rock climbing in the world. Um, And there there are others, though my favorite place has to be Strumitsa, Macedonia. It's probably about maybe 100,000 people within... 30 miles of the city center. So not, not small, but for how not wealthy it is, it's shocking about how many good things that there are in it. Um, and I know the theme of map corner has generally been on big cities, but I'm curious to hear your two, your twos, use twos opinions on medium sized cities and how they fit into a framework of a country or a region's culture. Um, thanks for bearing with me. Uh, and thanks for putting together this podcast. Um, oh, and I'm folding up my map. Is that how it's said? Anyway, goodbye and thanks again. Thanks for that, Kevin. Um, Why don't you, uh, you don't you start the ball rolling there, Claire? Oh, well, it was really interesting to think about how he felt a medium sized city was. um, And 
when I think about uh, a city, obviously in the UK, I mean, historically cities were places with cathedrals, although that's not always entirely true, as we've learned from the uh, the thing a, week, a month or two ago about how far it is from a cathedral to a Nando's. Um, <laughs> but um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I live in Bedford, which is um, kind of, I'd say, a medium-sized town, um, which has got... Uh, somewhere over just over 100,000 uh, residents and I'm so working how many just over 100,000 I suppose 100,000 20,000 okay. um I, uh, and then obviously now I work in, in Luton which is also a town very specifically a town because the uh, football club is called Luton Town uh which has got around 220,000 uh, so that's twice the size of what Kevin describes the city as being um so I, I did a little bit of um, digging around about what we what we felt was the difference between cities and towns. And um, here in the UK, we have uh, a think tank that's really quite well respected called the Centre for Cities, uh, which does a lot of analysis about the kind of state of the economy um, and the kind of kind of the the way that cities are resilient around certain issues. Um, and interestingly enough, of the cities on their list, obviously they've got the big core cities. In, included there your, your london your manchesters your birmingham's and so on um but actually they've they luton's on their list uh and they 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 track the economy there uh which is not a city but a town and they've also got on their list um crawley uh where i lived for a period of time i think it's probably just because that's where gatwick airport is uh, which has only got 112,000 residents. Ipswich, which I also lived in for a while, which has got 137,000. And uh, York, where I went to university, which has just got just over 200,000. So these are all on... York is um, a city, obviously, it's got a very large cathedral in it. Um, but, you know, some of these are not cities per se, um, whereas similarly, there's a sort of counterbalance think tank been set up in the last few years called the Centre for Towns, um, which has been part of this narrative where you've had what we feel are sort of left behind places uh, which have not done so well, uh, maybe have been a bit more Brexity, and um, you know there's concern about how how people in those places are you know really engaged in the kind of local well the national picture actually the national story um and they just they describe medium-sized towns as 30 to seventy-five thousand people and a large town is over 75 so you know they've got 102 large towns of over seventy-five thousand people that they've identified in the uk and i think it, it just goes to show that our concept of what makes a city or a town is different and some of that is about uh, being a centre for economy and some of it is about history because we have cities that are really small, famously so. Um, and, you know, the idea that some places have more specific history than others. I mean, I guess if you go to any local place uh, and you meet a local historian, they'll tell you everywhere's got history. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's difficult to know where that hierarchy works. Um, I don't know what your perception is, Royal. You've only been a larger city dweller in your mm. time. So, you know, what's your perception of, of smaller places, whether they be cities or towns? Well, first off, I'd say that my, my perception is also coloured by the fact that I spend half my time in the States now. And 
the American definition of a city trips me up every time. Every time you'll see signs saying that you are entering to the city of Walnut Creek, and you go, "Well, how can a city be called Walnut Creek?" And it's because uh, the American definition is a place over a thousand people is a city. Wow. You know, so well, that's a version have, of a rural identifier in this country. <laughs> my formative years are spent in the UK. I can't help but look at this and say this is nonsense. For me, a city is uh, somewhere I would say of over a quarter of a million people and and above. And even then, then there are small cities, medium-sized cities, and super cities. So you know, Mexico City is. A, you know, has a GDP and a size bigger than many a small country. And because, and, you know, that's over 20 million people. That in and of itself is a massive organism. And, and that's really what I see cities actually as. So for me, Kevin, the question about, you know, medium-sized cities, you know, all of a sudden it's a cultural one because what you describe as a city is not a city to me. It's a town. So where I, I studied in Batley School of Art, um, which is up in Yorkshire in England, and I'm guessing the back, the population of Batley might be 60,000. And then I went down to Worthing on the south coast, and Worthing might be about 100,000, 120,000. These are not cities. And these do not function in the way that I would say um, cities do in the global sense. And there's, and there's one kind of good signifier in the advanced West as to whether somewhere is a city. There are many, many signifiers, but here is just one. Does it have an Apple store? <laughs> and that's a really good marker because you need a certain level of wealth and uh, knowledge capital to be able to have an Apple store. And that's exactly what cities are. They are places which historically had uh, labor wealth. So it's where people went in to, you know, to earn money by the sweat of their brow. But increasingly now in the knowledge economy, it's exactly that. It's knowledge capital. So... I would almost say, in, this is only for um, advanced Western economies. If it has an Apple store, it's invariably a city. There are enough people there. And more to the point, not even just the, pe the amount of people that live there, the amount of people that are prepared to travel there to go and get their Apple, Mac fixed, bought, whatever. Yeah. Because you don't expect those to be on every street corner. But I don't know how many Apple Mac stores there will be, uh, Apple stores there will be in London. But let's say for the sake of argument, there are eight, let's just say. Um, and that kind of makes some level of sense. In my hometown of Birmingham, I can think of three. So there must be more than eight in London. There's going to be much more than eight. Um, in San Francisco, my God, they're all over the place. And, and it goes to another point, which I think you were making when you were talking about cities and how there's this res resurgence of the importance of cities. But really, this is 
places over a certain size, mm-hmm. whether you want to say it's a quarter of a million, half a million, or a million, just whatever. Because the Chinese perspective of what a city is going to be is going to be completely different from the British one. Yeah, yeah. Considering how, you know, there are so many cities that have a population over 10 million, and we in the West have never heard of them. No, that's right. And I was thinking, you know, if the question was around Europe as a whole, I think that's also, um, there's something about the um, dispersal of it. I mean, I can remember um, going for a weekend away in uh, Merida when I lived in Spain, and we drove just for ages between mm. places. Um, and, you know, there are, the, the UK is very compact, and you don't have to go very far from one place to another. Um, and yet there are some cities that are, you know, within a broader conurbation. West Midlands is a good example of that. But then, you know, if I think about somewhere like Norwich, it's not that big a place, but there's nothing else for about 30 or 40 miles around it. So mm. it is absolutely a, a hub. And, and where Kevin's talking about, you know, it not relating to other centres of population, sometimes mm. that's just sort of luck of geography, actually. Um, and I think that different places in Europe have different levels of density, which make for towns and cities that have more individual character um because they are they they have their own sort of gravitational pull um and it it does vary depending on where you are and and the density of the place and i think in the uk we're quite unusual in many ways because we are uh you know more dense as a nation i think than a lot of other countries um but not entirely obviously there are places that are you know whole cities Mm. in in of themselves but um you know i think sometimes we forget how far you have to go between places in in some other european countries Mm. a couple of things there um to go back to your point before then i'm going to come on to the whole kind of individuality of cities and you know them being regional hubs because they have distance between them and the next kind of regional hub is that with modern communications i.e the internet and with changing demographics cities which after the second world war were seen as dark dank places and people wanted to escape from hence the invention of suburbia with the car that cities in the last 20 years have had this massive resurgence all throughout the west and young people flock to cities because they're seen as hubs of culture as opposed to horrible places where there are loads of factories billowing smoke so what that has actually done that has me- meant that let's say my hometown of Birmingham Claire have I ever told you I'm from Birmingham oh hardly ever okay didn't, didn't think so so in, in a British perspective Birmingham Manchester Liverpool Glasgow have seen somewhat of a resurgence also Newcastle Leeds Seen a, um, seen a resurgence. And what that resurgence means is that when you go to these cities now, you see lots of great new buildings in the city centre than if you went 10 years ago. In the kind of deindustrialization which happened in Britain from the 1980s, small towns, market towns, were able to survive for whatever economic reason. So they've been able to keep their character and they still were local rural hubs where people came in to um, have a nice coffee, a tea, maybe go to the antique shop, whatever. 
And as Claire kind of outlined, it's been the towns in the UK which massively has suffered from deindustrialization. The cities also did, but they were in the last 10, 15 years have been able to reinvent themselves as places of culture, exciting, dynamic places with young populations. And they've so, lobbied very effectively as a collective group as well for 10 years. And, and, that's, and now we're seeing the you know, outcome of that. Absolutely. But another kind of wrinkle on this, because this is all about cultural perception. So, Kevin, when you posed your question and you, you really did get me to think of towns that I've been to and why did I like them? So if I go back to, you know, my British perception of what is a city. So I've been to Reykjavik twice in Iceland and I was massively disappointed. And it's because I'm an urbanist through and through. I do like um, tarmac and architecture and alleyways just off roads and that human culture. I love that. Going to Reykjavik, which is the capital of Iceland, I thought that's what I was going to see. I didn't. Reykjavik is a town. I don't know what the population is. Let's say it's 125,000 because the population of Iceland is only about a quarter of a million. So I'm guessing that about half of the population of Iceland lives in Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. This was an English town. I was very disappointed. Nothing wrong with English towns, nothing wrong with Reykjavik, but my expectations weren't met. When I go to New York, I go, I'm in a metropolis. I'm in a big city. I thought all capital cities, without engaging my brain, were kind of going to be New York light. But they're on that scale. It was very, very, very different. Um, so Reykjavik might be the capital of Iceland, but it's a town from a British sensibility didn't have the hustle and bustle. It didn't have the skyline. Lots of people talk about cities and a skyline. Yeah. Reykjavik doesn't have one. There aren't enough high-rise buildings. There just aren't. There's nothing wrong with Reykjavik per se, but if you're going there for an urbanist experience, it's the wrong place to go. Go to Iceland for other things, the hot springs, the uh, eerie and beautiful and spooky landscape but don't go there for an urban experience you just won't get it um Augsburg in uh bavaria was a ridiculously beautiful city sorry town um which i think kind of hits your understanding in terms of population it's about 250,000 300,000 people and it's chocolate box from a from a, a Western European perspective. It's medieval. The roads are very narrow, but it's also quite Germanic in terms of the architecture. And it goes back to one of our earlier things, which I said is the reason why you and I don't like Dubai, and because um, it, it doesn't feel organic. You don't feel like it's been around here for. Any yeah, level but of you time. know I'm a big fan of new towns. So um, there's something about uh, planned communities that does also float my boat. Um, but it they're just different, I guess. Um, and you know, there's something intentional about them that I quite like. 
So, but um, I, I think you have to be really careful though with a new town. And I could be getting what I'm about to say slightly wrong uh, because I, I think, listen, I think you're acutely aware that Claire comes to this actually knowing this stuff and, and working for for a city, for, sorry, for a town, for a lot. And, uh, and I just talk off the top of my head most of the times. But um, so the rulers of Dubai, the rule of the Emirate there, um, said we, about, what, 20 years ago, we need to look at the future when the oil runs out. So they planned it to be um, a knowledge hub. So we're going to get, so we're going to look at industries which are about thinking and we're going to get those people uh, all throughout the world, but really from the region to, to move here and we need to incentivize them to move here. So we're going to you know, create buildings, have tax breaks, etc., etc. So Dubai 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was nothing like it is now. Yeah. And so, and what they did was to build lots of big roads, shopping malls, uh, large, large office buildings, etc. And then with the uh, requisite uh, residential areas. And then they've moved, and then the, the vast, and then said, okay, so we have this. And then people said, well, it's bloody boring. There's no culture. They go, okay, we're going to go and get the Louvre to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, an outlet here, et cetera, et cetera. And there is little which is from the ground up. It's all been imposed top down. Then that, and then people have said, hmm, but it feels sterile. It doesn't quite feel real. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people that go to Dubai and just want to go to five and six star hotels. But that isn't a city. A city should be, or a town, should be enjoyed by walking from place to place. Is the connectivity so when people say to me, I love Dubai, and you go, what did you do? I stopped in a six-star hotel. But what did you do? Then I went to a shopping mall. But what did you do? They never talk about the serendipity of bumping into a great little corner shop, a wonderful little deli, this, you know, th this great place which has been around for generations. No. You know, and I, I and I love hotels. Don't get me wrong, I love hotels, but I don't grade a city by its hotels. That's completely, utterly different. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's it's what we describe as character rather than necessarily history. Mm. And um, you know, some places just maybe have more character than others. Um, sometimes that's about you know, a heyday at a particular time in history where they've got a particular, you know, architectural style. I mean, you know, you think to, there, there are some amazing towns in the Fens that, you know, were really big in wool in the 1600s or whatever. Mm. And, um, you know, they are just amazing places, but they are, you know, backwaters now to an extent. And, um, you know, it, there are other places that, you know, just really blossomed, to, you know, that have the most amazing Victorian architecture and, um, you know, just came from nothing to be big, you know, centres of population in the 19th century and, and, and you know, and carry that, carry that um, character, which, you know, back then people would have said, oh, it's all brand new, it's got no, it's got no soul. <laughs> but actually now we just value it differently. You know, I think um, sometimes you just, uh, it, it's just a factor of time where we 
grow to appreciate things or they they, they bed in. Um, you know, and some places are great because they have such a mixture. So we value we value some places that are almost being like perfectly preserved examples of something that's 100 or 200 or 300 years old. And we value mm. other things for the eclecticism of them. Um, and I guess, it, again, you've just got to, if you're a successful place, whether that's a city or a town, you, um, you know, you're doing the best with what you've got. Word, sister, word. Um <laughs> Another place which I had on my little list, uh, Kevin, was Bologna um, in Italy. And I didn't have a lot of preconceptions before I went to Bologna, um, other than I thought it was going to be industrial. And I, and I must admit that my preconceptions, and I first went to Italy about 20 years ago. Yeah, 23 years ago. I went to Turin and the way that, I pictured Turin and I, the Turin that I saw was not the Turin that Italians spoke about and Ditto Genoa and, and Milan, etc. These are all ridiculously beautiful places. But the history of, of a city, of, sorry, of a town, isn't just judged by the, the physical architecture, but it's also its governmental history mm-hmm. because Bologna though it was never an Italian city-state, almost feels like one. Um, so his, Italy has this history, and, and so does Germany, where lots of the cities were independent of, uh, not only of Italy or Germany, because those didn't exist as, as, as entities 200 years ago, but of the region in which it sits. So like Hamburg has been a city-state ever since, goodness, uh, the Middle Ages. So there's a reason why there's a massive concentration of wealth and knowledge capital within Hamburg, because Hamburg was its own country when Germany was was fragmented. And you kind of see those echoes when you go to places like Augsburg and Bologna. So So even though they're relatively small, disproportionately, they seem to have a lot of history and a lot of culture. Yeah. And going to Bologna, it had um, another reason why it was it's just incredibly beautiful. And it's lots of walls, funnily enough, and generally walls are anathema to a city. But this was um, because there were, it's a university city, a university town. I'm, I'm going between the two here and stuff. Um, and do a there were bill posters stuck all over them, all fly posters, depending on who I'm speaking to, a British or American audience here. And and it was beautiful. You felt that there was real culture. And that was such a juxtaposition. There are these walls which have been around for 500 years. And then they had these bill posters stuck on about a rave or some political event which is happening in a week's time. And the, the city even though it had this really rich history and it was beautiful and it was kind of medieval, it was still new and still breathing. And that's why, the reason why I picked out Bologna for this, because it had this youthful energy, but it, the city itself looked anything other than, than youthful. Yeah. Uh, and again, it just goes back to, so you can't just look at a city in isolation and, um, you have to also look at the roots and the history of that city or of that town. 
So I know that from a Californian perspective, the capital of California is in Sacramento. But you go to Sacramento and it doesn't have the life or the vitality of Los Angeles, San Diego, Oakland, San Francisco, or even San Jose. Like you go to Sacramento and it feels quite tired. It's a very, it feels a, a bit like development stopped in the 70s and the early 80s. And it's because the government of the of, Sac, of California was strategically put there to move it away from Los Angeles or San Francisco yeah. because those cities will get disproportionately more kind of influence. And so, so Sacramento is a city of a million people. It doesn't feel like it at all. It feels like 300,000. You know, it doesn't have a skyline. It doesn't have the vitality. You know, if the capital of California had been Sacramento for 500 years before there was even a United States, then it would be a Bologna it, or it might even be a small metropolis. But, you know, it's very much um, a legislative whim, you know, to put the, the capital there. So you've got to understand where this city and town sits historically, legislatively, uh, economically, in relation to other places as well. Um, and then the last, my last example here is I went to Beersheba, which is called the uh, the capital of, Negev, of the Negev in Israel. So if you imagine Israel on a map, we just look at a map of Israel, um, the southern bit, which almost looks like a, a triangle, which points down to the Red Sea. Um, the Negev, it's the desert. And when I travelled through Israel, um, all of a sudden the soil turned red and you were in the desert. And then the next city you saw was Beersheba. And it looks scruffy. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. And it's scruffy because it isn't Tel Aviv, which is where the tech industries are. It doesn't have the tourists like Jerusalem. It's not in a fertile bit of the country, like maybe Haifa or the places further north. And it does feel forgotten, even though it's burgeoning. You know, the the Israeli government are, are encouraging people to go to Beersheba. And it's significant in that it's not white Israelis that live there. Very significant. So I went and stayed with a family of the lashes of Ethiopian Jews. Wow. And this wasn't, again, this was not the Israel that I expected to see in this town, which, um, which fundamentally were white, forward slash uh, Middle Eastern looking inhabitants. These were darker skinned. These were the non-white Israelis. But to go to Beersheba was a bit like, huh, to see the amount of Ethiopian Israelis there. Um, so it's another aspect about towns is they can be, um, the, the demographic mix can be very different, which then over generations then starts to play out into the look and the feel of that city 
or of that town, of that place. You know, the cuisine changes. The architecture is influenced by somewhere else. The rhythms are, are, are influenced by a set of inhabitants that do, have, maybe have different festivals, have different religious observances, um, and probably take in a second language as well. They speak in Hebrew, but they have a second language of whatever that is. So, so those are kind of like you know my my, my kind of takes takes on cities that God cities towns is interchangeable, but places of let's say um, seventy five thousand up to up to three hundred thousand. To my British sensibility, these are towns. They're not cities, uh, but still. They can have this kind of rich treasure trove of experience. Yeah, and I'm sure that Map Corner listeners may well have views on this, so it'd be good to get some responses on that for a future episode. Mm-hmm. All right, from Kevin in Phoenix, we go down under, and this is Richard. Hi, Claire and Royfield. It's Richard McKenzie sending you a message from Melbourne, Australia. Um, a map that I saw relatively recently, uh, although in October, long before a lot of this began, was the map that was prepared by the Global Health Security Index. So it was a, a world map, color-coded, uh, based on the preparedness of each nation to fight a pandemic. Uh, and of course, this is very relevant today. And it's a map and the data that uh, informed the map that came into the news relatively recently when uh, President Trump boasted of how well-prepared America was to uh, fight coronavirus. The interesting thing about this map is that I suppose the data is very interesting, but it goes to show that a map is only as accurate uh, as the people who will be implementing the policies. So in this case, on paper, America seems to be a very well-prepared nation uh, but of course, they're now at the forefront of this horrible ep- epidemic, uh, in part because of a mixed response, you might say, from the political leadership. Uh, and that is something which no map can really uh, account for or prepare for. I hope you're both staying safe and all listeners are staying safe during this troubling time. Looking forward to the podcast. Mm. Uh, thank you for that, Richard. Uh, did you have a look at the map in question? I did, I did, um, you know, and I've been reflecting on uh, some of the things that people have shared on the Facebook page and, and, you know, more generally around understanding the current pandemic. I suppose it's worth these days saying when we're recording this because it's um, it's a very fast-moving thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think things that were felt to be relevant a week ago or two weeks ago suddenly look really old and out of date so um uh you know but it's interesting to reflect on what people thought we were prepared for you know uh many months ago and and how we've how have we made use of that preparedness or not made use of it um you know and that's and that's like um you know like what you're saying it's it's not just about in theory being prepared it's about how well you um execute those plans and 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 roll that out operationally so um it's you know not everyone has been successful on that i don't think it does go to the heart of 
governance, doesn't it? That you deal with uh, problems which you know are going to happen on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. You know, children are going to need to go to school, so we need to build some schools. We need roads to get people from point A to point B, etc. And then if you run into a situation whereby uh, you have um, a political party or credo which doubts the wisdom of government, you then start then to whittle back things which you see as not being important. Uh, and in the, in the American uh, sphere, uh, the CDC, the Center for D- Disease Control, you could, people from the right have argued that, well, you know, we're a first world economy. Uh, why do we need this? Why are we looking at third world countries? Why are we helping them out with, with their pandemics and outbreaks of contagion? This is, uh, this is somewhat frivolous. Yeah. Nobody can think in their lifetime of such a pandemic actually hitting the United States. So you have this cultural d- uh, dissonance of having this department well-funded And even though the department is there, so hence on the map, it says America is quite prepared. But at the heart of the American governmental system was somebody who said, this is an extravagance. Uh, I'm going to uh, defund it, take away some of the best minds because we don't need this. So so it, it is really instructive in that way to look at the supposed preparedness of Western countries, of other countries that are not so economically developed, and then how they've actually reacted in the pandemic. Because there is still a human element. It isn't just the machine of government. The machine of government still needs somebody actually to press the button or to say, yes, we're going to go into preparedness mode. We're going to preempt any sign of contagion breaking out in the Far East by putting in certain certain measures over here. If you don't believe that government has a vital place in society and fundamentally is a hindrance to economic well-being, then you're going to be caught with your pants down, which is quite literally what's happened to the United States. Though, interestingly, uh, and I'm bigging up California here, um, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, got out front because he said and everybody thought and and the american government thought that um banning flights from china were actually going to stop the contagion and san francisco has i think the biggest chinatown outside of china i could it might be the second but it's either number one or number two so there is a big chinese american population so if you were if you're saying the pandemic's going to break out in china san francisco just the other side of the pacific is going to be uh in number two it didn't happen because uh the mayor of uh, san francisco london breed put in various measures and then also people started to self-isolate so the week before 
the government of California closed all the schools, people actually started working from home. And it was noticeable a month ago, traveling from Vallejo into San Francisco, there was 30% less traffic on the roads. So people were very knowledgeable and started to self-isolate, to stop going into work. And then the, the city government, the, the, the county govern, governments and the state governments in California closed everything down. And that one week of them doing that is a difference between New York and San Francisco. The rates of infection in San Francisco are so low compared to um, New York, you know, so low. And, and then, of course, where the contagion really came into the United States was from Europe. It was people who infected from Europe. So it was kind of blindsided models. The, the other thing to say about the map is that it depends on how you're grading the, the preparedness or not as well, isn't it? Because fundamentally on the map, there are three, three grades, which I think is rather broad. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like the conversation you had last month about the um, women's stats thing. About, yes. you know, how do you define what the right best place to be a woman is? If you you might say, OK, well, you've got a more established health system. But if that health system isn't open to very many people, then do you count it as well established? Or if you've got stocks of, um, you know, I don't know, PPE or supplies but you haven't got the mechanism to distribute them, does it count? And and, and some, there are some things there that it's just so hard to know until you actually need to do it. And, you know, America was in the, the middle response bound. I'm not looking at the map now, but did it miss the top band by 5%, 1%, 2%, or is it 20%? So you kind of want to have a little bit of an understanding of... Um, the banding grading method methodology and stuff. Uh, but, but fundamentally, you know, South Korea was, was completely up there and everybody's marveling about the rigor of the testing of South Korea. Yeah. And I can't remember where Germany was with this, but I'm guessing Germany was in the top band as well. And, you know, Germany just swung into action super fast and its rates of infections have been relatively low considering how big its population is. So, so I think it's, it's, it's been instructive, uh, but, it, uh, but as, uh, as Richard says, it doesn't quite tell the whole picture because, um, you know, the United States uh, is going to end up probably being the country with the most amount of infection. And that's because of government lethargy in terms of putting together uh, putting into place the various uh, measures to stop the contagion. But is there a, I mean, surely there's also something of a cultural aspect as well, because it's um, it's, a, it's a bit of a sweeping generalisation. But if you if you suggest that America is a is a nation built on a sort of myth of rugged individualism, um, there's a yeah, there's a sort of aspect uh, this whole pandemic means that you have to make decisions that are based on the best interests of the collective. Um, and I think some some nations are just culturally more aligned to that. Uh, Claire, um, you, you're, you're spot on. It's not by accident that it's the states that see themselves as individuals. They're the ones that embraced the, the reality of the pandemic last. So you're completely right. You know, there is a whole idea that government works and is of use 
in somewhere like California. And that's not to say that the Californian governmental, uh, governmental system is perfect. It's, a, it's absolutely not. But your typical Californian believes in government. Hence, they heeded the messages. Those, the governments of the cities and of the counties and of the state swung into action because they don't have that same sense of rugged individualism, that it's kind of every man for himself. Uh, an American's home is his castle, to, to mix uh, you know, <laughs> the metaphor. I've got my gun, I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Contagion will stop at my door because if it comes to me, I'll blast it out of the way type of thing. And, and also, there is another element to, to all of this, of, of course, which is the reason why, um, from an American perspective, many people from more rural states have been very more casual about this is because one of the reasons why New York was hit so hard and so fast is because it has a metro system. Mm-hmm. So not only is it a global hub, i.e. people are traveling there, then it could spread through the city so fast because it has a metro system. Well, and a greater density of people. Well, there you go. There you go. It has a greater density of people, but then was also aided by the fact that people are in close proximity of with each other in a confined space and touching surfaces, surfaces which are already infected. Whereas if you're in rural Dakota or Idaho, it's going to take much longer for that virus to kind of get there. And then if it gets, and even when it gets there, it's going to take uh, a much longer time to spread as well. So the whole kind of sweep of urban geography, of physical human geography and travel patterns yeah. is really, really vital. Yeah, uh, it's modal shifting. It's, it's where places where people are using public transport rather than mm. sitting in their private cars, basically. Exactly, yeah. Or alternative, you could argue people who are able to walk or cycle in their city are less likely to therefore use mass transit and then they'll be at less risk. Mm. True that. True that. Um, so thank you for the call, uh, Richard. Uh, Claire, um, I think it's now your time to shine because I think I've done too much heavy lifting on, lifting on this episode. It's about time you did something. Told us about the socials and your map fact of the month. All right. So on the socials, I'm going to carry on the coronavirus theme uh, initially because we had some really interesting stuff posted to the Facebook group. Um, starting with sort of an early one, which was uh, from Guy Smith, who posted sort of mid-March around um, the, the um, a map showing worldwide prevalence of smoking, um, which, you know, uh, at a time when we're all trying to look after our lungs uh, is, uh, you know, quite an important aspect. It certainly has been a very important um kind of background issue for the original outbreak in China. So um, I think it's recognising the places that, again, this this might be a marker on the places that have most vulnerability to um, coronavirus because, uh, you know, if you have a background population that have uh, been steadily ruining their lungs for a long time, uh, their chances of surviving are definitely impacted by that. So that was quite an interesting one to think about how that might overlay on the uh, impact. Um, we had a map from Ken McDonald looking at the pro- population of uh, the, pro- you know, the proportion of the population in the US that didn't have health insurance, um, where there are some really 
incredible hotspot for you think goodness me that's i don't know what the plans are there but I mean, people are clearly going to struggle to get access health um health services um on the more lighter note um laura jackson posted a um a map which uh, demonstrated which states were most concerned about the provision of toilet paper in the u.s and um mm-hmm. That you know, obviously that was that was on the seventeenth of March, which I think was probably my peak toilet paper frenzy. Um, back on the seventeenth of March, uh, everyone was going a bit mad on toilet paper at the time. Um, and then um, we had some again another sort of positive story from uh, Pat Ralph Hanavan, who was talking. He posted a map showing how air quality was improved by you know basically people stopping moving around. Um, and uh, and then we had um, Stuart Arundale posted the map from Tectonics, which demonstrated the impact of uh, people attending a single Florida beach uh, during spring break and where they went. Um, now that the we might come back to this in a in a, in a future um, episode, but uh, I suppose there are some things to consider here about. What do we really know about what our smartphone is telling people and what data is sold about us to people uh, who can then track that, even if it's tracked anonymously? Um, that you know, In order to get the data for this kind of analysis, which could clearly be done quite easily, um, it just shows how much we are being tracked. And I know that obviously there's a lot of discussion right now about how we do contract tracing for people who are diagnosed and therefore need to you know we need to know where those people have been um and there's a whole host of privacy considerations around that which i think might be an interesting one to come back to um so yeah it's a whole load of stuff there and obviously the uh it seems like the granddaddy of all the coronavirus mapping uh, options are the people at john hopkins university who are um you know doing amazing work on this so uh, anyone who's interested in the kind of the geographical picture uh, around the virus uh, that's definitely where i would point you at the direction of so that's the coronavirus theme um another big theme in the on the facebook group has been these various quizzes uh, mm-hmm. and we've had lots of those so maybe that's uh, um you know again something we need to come back the most commented one was the one that you posted royfield about the um the names of capital cities expressed in emojis um, but the the quiz around European capitals was also uh, very popular, and I was very impressed at our worldwide uh, listenership and their ability to identify English counties. Um, mm. That was uh, that was amazing, and um, yeah. So there's been but there some was, really good was there a mistake on that because the East Riding of Yorkshire it got that wrong. Oh, would you know what? That's one of the ones I got wrong. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, Because I thought there was only... No, hang on. There's a a West Riding. There isn't. Not anymore. There's a West Yorkshire. There's West Yorkshire, Yorkshire, North North Yorkshire, Yorkshire, and a South, and and an East Riding. Yeah, so Sheffield is South Yorkshire. Yeah. West Yorkshire is Leeds, and North Yorkshire is York. like the majority of the, the old county of Yorkshire is North Yorkshire. Then there's the East Riding, which after the reorganisation of county boundaries in 74 was Humberside. It was North Humberside and North Lincolnshire was South Humberside. Yeah. And I went, well, that's the East Riding. And it told me I got it wrong. I thought, I, I know I'm not wrong here. Yeah. 
And somebody else made the point of saying that that was wrong as well. Oh, well, that, I, take, I take heart from that because I only got two wrong. That was one of them. And the other one was um, sort of Northumberland, Durham, somewhere yeah. up that way. Um, yeah. And I was a bit, I was a bit, um, a bit yeah. weaker on my far northeast uh, yeah. of the UK. But uh, it was, um, or the, of England more, more appropriately, actually. Um, but yes, but then I, I did say to my friend, like, some, some of those I managed to identify by shape alone, which is quite <laughs> sad, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't yeah. even need the options. <laughs> the other one which I got right but would have got wrong was on the countries and capital cities one. It said Monaco. Now... To me, the capital of Monaco is Monte Carlo. And yes, it's one and the same place. But historically, Monaco, uh, the principality, took in the two towns which are to the east, which are now part of France. So when in the 1860s, it shrank, its borders were shrank just to Monte Carlo, the city, well, the town, you know, Monaco and Monte Carlo became synonymous. It's the same place, in effect. But one is the country and one is... And it said, so what's the capital of Monaco? And Monte Carlo wasn't there. If Monte Carlo would have been there as an option, I would have gone for that. But it was like Monacoville or something. Or another. So I got that right, but I thought it's only because somehow they've written the question wrong or, or whatever. I, I was completely confused. <laughs> Yes, so the, the whole Monacoville thing did uh, scupper a few people, didn't it? Yeah. I've never heard of Monacoville, never heard of it. But I've heard of Mon a place called Monte Carlo. Yeah. So, hmm. And then the other one, just, just before I completely forget, which I would have got wrong, but it must have not been an option, was the capital of Holland. I always thought that was The Hague, not Amsterdam. Yeah, well, I mean, having lived in Amsterdam, it was on one of the options. I was like, oh, I didn't think that Amsterdam was the capital, and yet it's got many of the key institutions and exactly. the seat of the royal family and so on. So, uh, of the options that were there, it was the one I went for. But that was, um, yeah. But I, all the time, I was thinking, I'm pretty sure it's not actually Amsterdam, and it's. But again, mate, my, it's like a, you know, like we were saying earlier, places that are the sort of administrative capital of. Of, of a country are not always the most famous or biggest cities mm. that there are um and you know sometimes historic capitals and administrative capitals are not always the same thing yeah 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 um so am i allowed to be just a little bit smug and say i got all of those right yeah yeah and i mean i'm getting used to being you being smug <laughs> let's, let's not well, let's not uh, you know h that particular scab <laughs> Well, I've hardly been as smug as I was on Dum Dee Dum, but I, I think I've held this in check, but I did get all of those right. I'm just going to say it one more time. Anyway, moving swiftly on, uh, are we just about done with the socials? Pretty much, yeah. There was a, there was a fun thing on, um, on Twitter which uh, I put on, which was uh, a map showing the language spread in the British Isles with different forms of uh, Old English, Middle English, Modern English, and you sort of see how it sort of overtakes all the other native languages particularly the celtic languages and um, that's quite an interesting one i think that one originally um, came from simon Kustamaka, friend of the show uh, and something that i would refer people to right now which is the hashtag maps at home which um seems to be a kind of 
geographers, mapping and sort of spatial wizards, people, you know, proper professional people, not like us, uh, um, hashtag that they're using to talk about the maps that they have at home. And that's quite fun at the moment to see what people are doing. And I've seen at least two um, face masks made of map fabric. So, uh, you know, people are protecting themselves, but still showing their love of maps, uh, even in their face masks. So um, it brings it back down to the uh, coronavirus. And then my map fact of the month, uh, actually, I gathered from Twitter this this month, uh, and it was thanks to the marvellous Kathleen Rowan-Jones, um, who uh, shared a tweet, and the map fact is that Russia's surface area is bigger than Pluto's. Hmm. And that's a really interesting thread. If you look at hashtag map corner and there's a whole load of amazing stuff there, including the kind of related uh, fact, which is that Australia is wider than the moon. Wow. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Thank the you, moon Catherine. is pretty small one. Yeah. Um, are we just about done? Uh, well, I just want a quick mention for the fantastic Michael Pearmain, who has sent us uh, another one of his illustrated essays. We should find a way of sharing these, actually, um, where he's given us a little bit of uh, geographical history about the Isle of Lewis, which is um, an island which is on the sort of north western side of, of scotland but um the fun thing is done is uh, share a, a map which is sort of throwing south at the top and north at the bottom to show how this sort of what has often felt as quite a remote uh place was really at the center of a load of very significant seafaring nations across uh, scandinavia and and the british isles um and you know going back uh, to sort of Viking times, there was it was you know a real centre of uh, culture and um, and travel and a real staging post for people who were travelling between um, other parts of of the region and um, uh, you know there was obviously the the chess the the Lewis chessmen uh, are you know one of the most sort of famous treasures uh, for well, for Scotland as a whole to be fair but. Um, uh, you know that they are dating from from that time, but discovered in the 19th century, but dating back to uh, more sort of Viking times. And there's, yeah, it's 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 just a really fascinating piece of work. Um, so thank you, Michael. And uh, we might pick out some more of the uh, aspects from that in a in a future show, because uh, or I might find a way of sharing it onto the website, perhaps, uh, because uh, you know it's it's worth a read, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it time for us to start folding away our maps, Claire? I believe it is. All righty. So, um, good people, Map Corner aficionados, uh, we are going to have a Zoom meeting, a meeting on Zoom uh, in the next uh, week or so. Uh, we haven't quite uh, made decided on all the details, but you can be abreast of all of our plans and maybe you can join you can uh, help us by telling us uh, you know suggesting something which we should actually be doing on our kind of zoom meetup by going on to our facebook page so if you're not a member of our facebook group become one and then you'll know what time 
uh, our Zoom meeting will take place and you'll have all the credentials to be able to log in securely and commune with the other Map Corner listeners. So um, that's incredibly important. Um, if you haven't done so already, please go onto a podcatcher of your choice, whichever one you use. Um, and go and write us a review because it's a very important way of us getting more traction, more listeners to the show. If you have a friend or a loved one or even a family member um, who is kind of vaguely interested in the world of maps and mapping and cities, etc., why don't you tell them to give the podcast a listen? You know, dare I say, everybody's locked down now. So it's not as if they haven't got time on their hands. So why don't you try and uh, convert them into the Church of Royfield and Clare, which is sometimes also known as Map Corner. During, during lockdown, this is a time when a map can really take you to a different place uh, when we're not allowed Look, to leave our home. So poetic. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Asprey. Um you can go onto our website, which is mapcorner.space. Uh, you can listen to the old shows and also you can go and uh, click that speak pipe button and you can send us a message and we just want to hear from you. And don't forget, and I haven't been saying this enough, hence it's slowly run into the buffers. So I do apologize. We need you to give us your audio postcards. It's incredibly important. And why don't we do this? But for the uh, the next couple of map corners, why don't you just look out of your window and tell us what you see? Yep. Why, why don't we do that for our audio postcard for the next couple of shows? So look out of your window, describe what you see, and tell us why you are looking at what you are. Cool. That well. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, that's me just about done. Hopefully, you've had some level of infotainment from this podcast you've had some information and some education so i can sign off from me royfield brown who's in clapham in london i'm folding away my map how about you claire yep and in clapham in bedfordshire i'm folding mine away too <laughs>